and welcome back to another episode of Bloodthirsty Times. I'm your host, Emily. And it's your boy, Will. And it's me, Octavio. Today we are continuing our series of lesser-known serial killers. This one's going to be our first three-parter, and it's frustratingly complicated and full of what-ifs. Have you guys ever heard of the Grim Sleeper from Los Angeles, California? I hadn't until my brother-in-law, Josh, sent in a fan-topic submission email. Thanks, Josh. You my boy, Blue. So watch out for those ghetto birds and join us in these bloodthirsty times. Serial killers do on a small scale what governments do on a large one. They are a product of the times, and these are bloodthirsty times. So, Will, today is a special day. Not only is it the beginning of our very first three-part series of one single serial killer, it is also Emily's birthday today. Happy Yay. birthday. Happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you. I was like, where is he going with this? <laughs> what else is it? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. It's Nash- National Something Awareness Day, though, for sure. Probably. Probably. Yeah, <laughs> we both are probably. Every, every day of the year is one of those. It is one of those. And if it's something really important, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, Way to cover your base as well. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I'm 41, by the way. What? Yep. Today. No way. Yep. She's not. She's really not. Nah, she's like 30. She is, she is a cradle robber, but not by that much. Um, it's not really a cradle robber because like, it's not that much like so you thir- said so, so 35 wait how old am i hold on 30 are you 36 thir- wait am i 30 turn to 35 i was born in 86 i'm 36 okay i'm 36 <laughs> shit yes I, i'm turning i turned 36 today yeah after your 25th birthday everything kind of just meshes together and i'm like i don't know how old i am what year oh. is it <laughs> yep it's uh, uh yeah i'm 31 that's right yeah Right? <laughs> I, the only time I panic when someone asks me how old I am is the the cash register lady checker. Cash <laughs> register gro- lady checker. <laughs> <laughs> at the grocery store of alcohol. They're like, how old are you? I'm like, I'm like 26. <laughs> well, I mean, now with, uh, with the game show. Just showed- go to self-checkout at the Growcraft store. <clears throat> well, now uh, with you the... Can't. Uh, well, with alcohol, you can't. When you show your ID now, there's a one in front of it, so people automatically see when they won. Oh, yeah, you're old enough. I'm like, what do you yeah. mean? <laughs> Just by that one number? Yeah, 19, yeah, whatever. You were born in the 1900s. Yeah, oh my God, stop fuckers. it. Fuckers, I hate that shit. <laughs> Are you, what were the 1900s like? Fuck you. Yeah. I can tell you what the very end of the 1900s was like. <laughs> I can barely tell you that. <laughs> but yeah, we just wanted to. Say happy birthday and uh, sorry, you. sorry you're working on the pod. That's okay. Yeah. So, but that's. I think we have a long one today, so I think we're just gonna jump right into it, you guys. What do you think? Sounds yeah. like a plan. Me thinks that sounds good. All right, thank you, Jar Jar. Um, mm-hmm. So when you think of life in Los Angeles, usually you think of traffic and maybe fancy living and movie stars and Hollywood and Sunset Boulevard and maybe even Rodeo Drive, which is all fun and nice 
and there are plenty of venues to go see your favorite band or comedian and that is true for some people living in los angeles but then there's the other like two-thirds of los angeles county which includes the valley and south central la which is where our story takes place today when i think of la i don't think of quiet and crimeless i do think of what i see on tvs but i also just think of like huge buildings the worst homeless ratios in the nation and entire parts of the cities labeled for its mass amount of drug dealing and homelessness i also see a lot of gang related issues and separation of not just race ethnicity or gender but separation in those categories themselves honestly it really seems scary to live there and i'm not really sure it's like all of that but i hope it's not it it is and it isn't. That's the one of the great things about LA. Uh, well, really, most major cities is that both of those are true. You have this elegant, rich, lavish lifestyle, and then you have the absolute uh, worst possible scenario where you're living in tent city and you know outside of uh, that famous hotel, the uh, the, C- the Cecil Hotel, and things are could not go worse for you. But this is like Skid Row is the famous like area correct yeah yeah in downtown la there's skid row yeah tent city have you ever have you ever driven by skid row i have yeah i used to um back in the day my mom especially would like to go back to school shopping on i think it's 11th street over by the fashion district and i think it's 11th street Mm -hmm. and uh it's like a little back alleyway where they sell a bunch of knockoff shit you know that whole area they sell knockoff shit yeah but i mean it's a it's 11 for what looks like a hundred dollar t-shirt you know what i mean and so i would go back to school shopping there and so sometimes i strayed a little bit too far and i got into those you know back alleys and and skid row areas and it was scary and i you know excuse me you strayed a little too far back to school shop back to school shopping and were close enough to get, get to skid row I mean, the place that you bought your clothing at seems legit, and I would totally love to go to something like that. But yeah, it's it's not that like place. Well, it's, it's totally not legit, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I really like like the straw market in Mexico is really cool and knockoff yeah. shit's awesome. No, I'm not gonna lie. Like when we went to where we were going, and you know, it was, it's a very populated area, and so they didn't want to fuck with that. But you know. We would make a day of it. Um, I would always beg for toys off the knockoff Chinese place that has like every uh, electronic you could think of. And then we would get street meat, you know, those hot dogs wrapped in bacon and whatnot. But yeah, mm. if you go too far out of it, you're going to end up in a shitty place. Uh, so there, it is both of these realities are true. That's the sad truth of it. That is one thing I did notice about this while researching this is that you could go from just literally one street to the next a block and be in a completely different city it seems and yeah. i don't understand that at all maybe it's because of where oh, I live okay now, well but- perfect example remember we went on vacation to memphis and yes. we stayed at like uh beale street was like really fucking nice and then we the hotel we were at or not even the, the motel we were at the back side was like a dilapidated it was, like it was like a fucking movie scene from like yeah. a haunting or something it was it really was shit. it was just dilapidated buildings too. yeah it was it was exactly like that you have beale street which is really you know taken care of because it's the popular tourist area and then just one street over no one gives a fuck about that it's dilapidated and there's who knows what goes on back there it's essentially the same thing but um if 
So if you're old enough, I don't have to tell you, but back in the 80s was the Reagan era, which, by the way, his policies helped boost the economy by cutting taxes and increasing military spending, which is why a lot of people saw their wealth grow. But his policies also tripled the federal debt, which is a major contributing factor as to why us millennials have to deal with inflation tripling the price of everything while the minimum wage stays the same. But I digress. So in 1984, the Olympics were held in Los Angeles, and the next year in 1985, the year our story starts, uh, so many incredible movies like Pee-wee's Big Adventure, uh, Rambo, Teen Wolf, Weird Science, A Nightmare on Elm Street, and The Goonies, and The Breakfast Club, and Just One of the Guys, and more importantly, the masterpieces that are Clue and Back to the Future were released that year. So in certain areas of the country, of, of the city, things were going really well. And then, you know, there's also a few songs that came out to you like Huey Lewis's Power of Love and AHA's Take Me On, uh, which actually- Take if On you, Me. Yeah, Take On Me, which in my opinion is one of the first ever breakdowns to be in a song. Oh. Well, I didn't know that about I'm that sorry, you said the you said the movie Clue. Yeah. Okay. Wait, Clue. what? A mo- Clue was a movie that came out that year. So I'm just trying to show by these are pop culture things that were happening a, a masterpiece. Oh, it's a so, fucking yeah. shut your oh. fucking mouth. It is a masterpiece. Oh, never heard of it, honestly. Okay. Wow. Seriously. Yeah, no, it doesn't surprise me, but still. Well, at least can we agree that Back to the Future is a masterpiece, please? Nope. Will not. Yeah, I'll give you the first one. Mm-mm. Won't participate. <laughs> Anyways, the point the point of saying all that is that the times in Los Angeles were booming i guess in almost every aspect yes and a large contributing factor to the increased crime and homelessness in la was also what wasn't also just la was the whole united states um was the crack epidemic of the mid-1980s and it wasn't just in la but it was also in other major cities like new york philadelphia baltimore washington dc san francisco and miami they were heavily saturated with the growing crack epidemic and crack cocaine became popular amongst the lower class communities due to its affordability, immediate and intense effects. And of course, it could turn a high profit because once you did it, you needed more and the cycle never ended. Its half-life was short and the desire to keep that feeling was strong. Crack, crack cocaine got its name from the crackling sound that it made when you smoked it and that certain types and that certain type of use was the most popular among the lower class communities due to its lower cost. I literally never knew that. I didn't know that's why it's called crack. I didn't either. And honestly, I learned that it's the complete opposite of what I thought, how this I mean, process I know, was. I know why yeah. it's called rock. Like it looks like little rocks, but I didn't know that's why it's called crack. Like I genuinely just learned that right now. I, well. The more you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's crazy. We talk about drugs like all the time. And Emily and I have had these conversations just like in normal daily life. Like what does fuck do drugs look like? I don't, I really am naive when it comes to that shit. Like I've never touched or really even seen anything harder than weed. So I am, you know, honestly naive in when it comes to my personal knowledge of these things. Yeah. I've like actually touched like a little baggie of, I think it actually was heroin at the time, but this was the height of the, like the fentanyl laced shit and like if you touched it you know you could kill you immediately and it was like just a, such a huge fear that we had in the ER and like my boss's mm-hmm. slogan was like only buy drugs from your reputable dealer and it was just like this <laughs> like going joke with us but yeah. like I just pulled it out of the 
like the pocket like not thinking and was like holding it gloveless like no big deal and I'm like I don't know what it is and then someone smacked it out of my arm and I was like oh that's drugs so my bad yeah like, like I also don't know which ones you inject and which ones you snort I don't either but I think it's just eat it's to each their own you could probably do them all the same ways nowadays maybe mm-hmm that's how I learned that crack cocaine is made from mixing and cooking powdered cocaine, water, and baking soda together, which creates hard or solid pieces that could be easily broken up, packaged small, and sold for much cheaper than pure cocaine. Oh, uh, because it was cut. I knew that. Yes. Yeah. I yeah. thought this entire time that cocaine was made from crack cocaine, I guess. Like it was oh, just crushed okay. up crack cocaine. Yeah. Which I guess it could still essentially be that too, but no, I, think, I didn't realize it was. Well, no, I'm saying like people who want to snort it aren't gonna crack, have it in crack rock form. I feel like it. I feel like that could be dangerous. But again, I don't know. Hey, if you're a hardcore drug user, let us know how that works. Yeah, or don't. Um, and in this, um, the height of the crack epidemic, uh, cocaine was referred to or known as the white man's drug, and it's actually known to carry less of a sentence than crack cocaine does. And this is also a contributing factor to the societal injustices that the world faced then and in many ways still does today. Yeah. It's weird that it carries a lesser drug sentence, but you know. Very weird. Is it weird? No. <laughs> no. Ooh. Are we Let's in Miami Vice? Cocaine. Are we in Miami yeah. Vice right now? <laughs> that sounds <laughs> When you asked for music and that's what you're getting at. That's what I expected. <laughs> no, I said, hey, Will, find me music. Uh, 1980s Los Angeles. I My guess I got it. My mind immediately went to neon. <laughs> this. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, well. We're talking, we're talking about Coke. All right. And in the 80s. <clears throat> it was called the marijuana of the 80s. The shit was just falling out of the sky, man. And it was a massive problem in the 80s. And there seems to be a direct correlation between the crack epidemic and AIDS. Ooh. Because before crack, hard drug users were fans of heroin. But now knowing that AIDS can be passed through needles, they needed a new high that was more, quote unquote, safe. Quote unquote, and, safe. Yeah. And because you could smoke crack, it became widely popular. Now, crack cocaine wasn't big in the drug communities yet until a couple of guys named Ricky Donnell Ross and Oscar Danilo Blandin introduced it. At least that's what everyone is saying. Hmm. <laughs> now, Ross had become one of the most successful drug dealers in South Central because of his ties to a Colombian cocaine dealer. And in fact, Ross was the first black South Central drug dealer to create such a relationship with a Colombian trafficker. And in turn, he became the sole conduit for affordable crack in South Central L.A. That dude must have been just raking in the money. Oh, yeah. Well, not only him, this guy, Blandon. Mm -hmm. He was a supplier of the booger sugar. Mm. And he helped Ross with the supply of cocaine from his Colombian amigo. And then Blandon was dubbed the Johnny Appleseed of crack in California. <laughs> that's, that's a name you want. Yeah. Oh, man, <laughs> the Johnny Appleseed. John Appleseed, the crack man. Oh yeah, that, you gotta you gotta that's, earn that title. You gotta start somewhere. Yeah, you gotta plant those seeds. Now the crap. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Crap, crack epidemic of the '80s was being solely pointed at Blandon and Ross and their own drug network. 
And it wasn't just LA that was seeing a huge rise in crack. It was the entire nation. Now, what we were able to show was where the stuff was being sold, which was the inner cities, in Los Angeles primarily. And we were able to show what the effect of that was, which was to help spark this horrible crack epidemic that went from Los Angeles to hundreds of cities across the United States in the years after that. Now, Ross being the street corner, the street corner dealer, he worked hand in hand with Blandon to acquire the cocaine. Ross began buying the coke from Blandon in late 1983 or 84 and would purchase two or three kilos every couple days. Blandon becoming... My God. No, I can't talk today. <laughs> Blandon, who was becoming annoyed with these small transactions, started to sell Ross 25 kilos at a time. And by 1986, he was selling 100 kilos a week. Damn. Now, the DEA estimated in 1982 that 44 tons of coke had been brought into the country. And in 1980 alone, 40 to 48 tons. And 20% of that, what's that? That's a lot, but I don't know how, like, I want to see it in relation to something. <laughs> how big it is, that pile? Yeah. Well, well, a car weighs about two tons. Mm. So, it's 20 of those. 20 to 30 of those. Good yeah, God. so think of about 20 to 30 Camrys. Jeez. Yeah. It's a lot of booger <laughs> sugar. We just created yeah. a new measurement for drugs, Camrys. Yeah, Camrys. <laughs> Go to Camrys. I need like four Camrys, dude. Can you get me four Camrys? Oh, oh you want... Oh, quick math. You want eight tons? <laughs> quick math. <laughs> yes, yes, please. Yes. Now... Of the 40 to 48 tons, 20% of that was being brought into LA alone for distribution. Damn. And in 1984, it was estimated that 70 tons of Coke was being smuggled into the US and was being distributed to dealers who far outsold what Ross was selling. Yeah, I think you just gotta watch the movie Blow to understand any of this. Yeah, I was gonna say, is that what that's oh, yeah. based off of? Yeah, yes, exactly. I don't remember names from it, but I just remember some of the movie and that was a pretty good movie. Oh, it's a damn good movie. Or Scarface. I've never seen that one. I think Blow's more based off of this, like, actual. I think Scarface is just a... That's like the importation Blow is, right? It's more so heavily... It's a smuggling. It's a smuggling. Yeah. Yeah. Now, cocaine prior to the 80s was a wealthy drug. Well, even in the 80s, it was a wealthy drug. But Mm -hmm. meaning if you were poor, you smoked PCP or you did heroin. And that was until the development of crack cocaine, which made it much more affordable for the poor black communities of South Central LA. And the idea of smoking this coca paste was not a new idea. In, in fact, it had began, been gaining popularity in Peru and the Caribbean into the late 1970s and was probably the precursor to why it became such a big hit in the US. Now, although it is not possible to pinpoint a single inventor of crack, it is likely that one of the earliest appearances of crack was in the Caribbean, especially the Bahamas. Now, from the Caribbean, crack made one of its earliest entries in the United States and Miami sometime in the early 1980s. Around the same time, a similar product called rock cocaine, you know about that, Octavia? Mm. Oh, yeah. It began making its appearance in Los Angeles. Now, whether Los Angeles' version of crack had its source in the Caribbean or it represented a simultaneous discovery by a local drug chemist is not clear. 
What is clear, however, is the number of ominous trends that started to appear in the black communities in the mid-1980s. Between 1984 and 1994, the homicide rate for black males aged 14 to 17 more than doubled, and the homicide rate for black males aged 18 to 24 increased almost the same. Now, what's puzzling about this picture is a very striking pattern, mostly affecting black men and women, rather than a population in general. What was it that made these things happen? You know, this could be true, or you can watch uh, the show The Whitest Kids You Know, where they do a sketch about a guy with a suitcase saying, hey, kid, want to make some money? And then the FBI agent or the CIA agent just hands over a suitcase, and um, now the black people are all addicted to cocaine. Oh, good lord. <laughs> so, you know, whether it was imported from or started in the Caribbean, or it was the CIA implanting it to the neighborhoods. I don't know. You decide. Ooh. All right. Um. So, in the United States, cocaine is a Schedule II drug under the Controlled Substances Act, indicating that it has a high abuse potential but also carries a medicinal purpose. Under the Controlled Substances Act, crack and cocaine are considered the same drug. Wait, what medicinal purpose? We do a cocaine um, solution mixture for <laughs> nosebleeds. It actually helps very well for uncontrollable nosebleeds. And Whoa, occasionally I... we have to request from pharmacy that we get literal liquefied cocaine sent down in a little squeeze bottle and have to squirt it in patient's nose. Wait, cocaine comes in liquid form now? It can come in any form you want. I mean, I knew... I knew... I knew PCP came in a jug of like I a gallon. I think everything does. How to Catch a Smugglers taught me that like you can liquefy anything now. Mm. Like they're sending in barrels of ketamine not liquefied and stuff like that. Like which that's normally liquefied. Meth also everything can be liquefied, I guess. Probably not 100% certain. Enough. Yeah. There's a will, there's a way. Exactly. So the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986 increased penalties for crack cocaine possession and usage. It mandated a mandatory minimum sentence of five years without parole for possession of five grams of crack. To receive the same sentence with powder cocaine, one had to possess 500 grams. Thankfully, people saw this for what it was and fought against it. Not for the sake of making it okay to do either, but for the fact that they are both illegal, but one is cheaper than and more widely used by a certain demographic than the other. The cheaper one, of course, was the one that carried the harsher sentence. The sentencing disparity was reduced from 100 to 1 to one to 18 to 1 by the Fair Sentencing Act of 2010. I like how you like just kind of like gleefully skipped over that. Uh, white people use cocaine and colored people use crack cocaine. Crack cocaine is more heavily sentenced. I wasn't, I wasn't gleeful. I was going to discuss like that's. Well, you literally said like one one is more. Uh, let's, let's find your words that you said. I said certain. One is cheaper and it's more widely used by a certain demographic. Certain demographic. That's the word you certain demographic. Let's just but be I, clear. I'm not, I wasn't specifically stating used like. by black people. Not, yeah. but not only black people. I'm thinking like homeless well, people and like lesser, like I could be speaking ethnic. Yeah. Yeah. The poorer communities. So, you know, like you said, it's the, like we'll start out as the white people drug. Uh, it, I mean, it technically was targeted to, yeah. you know, have harsher sentences for black people. Yes. That's what its intentions were. Well, yeah. the government wouldn't do that, would they? <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> but still, it's still insane that crack cocaine and cocaine are essentially the same drug. 
just in different it though, forms. It's, it's not. And this is what aggravated me the most about this because crack cocaine, we now know, is mixed. It is cut. It is yeah, but it's baking from the soda same and source. water. But if you think about it, it was less cocaine is in crack cocaine than oh, there's an actual cocaine. Yeah, that's but good you point. have to have less crack for a harsher sentence, which makes you have actually lesser cocaine in crack cocaine than you do pure cocaine. Yet it still carried a higher sentence. So like that right there in itself was really targeting. And there's really no way other than to say that that was purposely done. Because it's how almost like they it? wanted to disenfranchise an entire subgroup or uh, demographic in uh, in a certain city so that they are not allowed to vote or own businesses. Yes, or carry firearms or or, or do anything that exists, I guess, guaranteed by our constitution. Yes. Hmm. Hmm. So ponder on that. But Los Angeles hmm. is not just a hot spot for homelessness and drugs and all of the movies you listed. It was quite the breeding ground for serial killers in the 70s and 80s. At one point during that time, there were thought to be 20 serial killers working simultaneously within a fi- within five miles of each other. It definitely earned its title of the serial killer capital of America. Most or all of them had catchy names to go along with their killing sprees. And I've never really understood that because it seems to glorify them in a way and takes away from their actual name, like giving them a superhero name or some shit. I'm sure that that's not the intentions and quite literally most are coined where or how after where or how they killed people. But still, their names would be just fine to use, I think. I don't think they need like a fucking superhero name. That's stupid. Okay, well, like a lot of times the media will give these killers what's called psychonyms. Uh, and it's because we don't know who they are. Like we don't know their actual identity and the purpose of naming them like quote unquote neat names or terrifying names based on how or where they kill their victims is to first of all, sell papers. And secondly, to terrify its readers in the hopes that they take more precautions and be overall more careful. And sometimes, as we will see with our case today, letting the public know that there is one person out there. Well, actually, there were like at the time of like 85, when we start talking about uh, our serial killer today, uh, there's at least six actively hunting pretty much the same victim profile at the exact same time. Uh, Just to name a few that were in Los Angeles just in the 1980s, like just in the entire decade, uh, were Kenneth Bianchi and Angelo Buono, otherwise known as the Hillside Stranglers. We have Timothy Wilson Spencer, a.k.a. the Southside Strangler. Richard Ramirez, a.k.a. the Night Stalker. Uh, Randy Stephen Kraft, a.k.a. the Scorecard Killer. Uh, there was also Michael Hubert Hughes. He doesn't have a psychonym. Uh, John Floyd Thomas Jr. Again, no psychonym. And of course, the Grim Sleeper. These were only a few that could be found with just a quick Google search. But as Emily said, there were probably at least 20 that were around at the same time. Uh, that's a scary time to live. fucking terrifying, dude. I, like, uh, so my brother... He did send an email uh, asking us to cover this this Grim Sleeper case, and and he made a point to say that it'd be interesting to see our point of view from because he knows that drugs were a huge factor in the killings and why he was allowed to go on for so long. But honestly, what I found more interesting was this fact that there were so many active serial killers in the same Los Angeles county at the same exact time. 
Yeah, that's what was terrifying to me. Like, you people, like, live over there, and this was going on down the street. What do you mean, you people? What do you mean, you people? Like, <laughs> <laughs> you people. <laughs> no, people that aren't me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, like, my brother said, like, it's interesting because the crack co- uh, crack epidemic was happening, but I'm like, dude, there's a serial killer epidemic. What do you mean? <laughs> like, this is way worse. Yeah. Which yeah. one is worse? Getting uh, high? Well, maybe I mean, dying? To be fair, serial killers or, only cover the gamut about one percent of all murders. So, so I think crack is worse, but still, it's interesting the fact that there's so many serial killers in the same area at the same time. Mm-hmm. Also, yeah. ADD brain. But I forgot I was going to ask and mention this earlier. Um, how the hell are you going to go from heroin, which is a downer, to crack, which is an upper? I understand the need to just get. Well, I don't understand the need to get high, but that's what their desire was. But people stopped doing using heroin. needles. Yeah, why didn't they just? That was. Like, yeah, they stopped using nose. the heroin because of the uh, the AIDS that were going AIDS. around. Yeah, I know. But so they they wanted to switch to a different drug. They still wanted to get fucking high, but they wanted to switch to a safe quote like Will said is quote unquote safer drug because you didn't share a needle. Yeah. So that was my next thing was like so then you can't smoke or snort heroin because if they could then why wouldn't they have just done that? Mm, uh, no, it's it's because of the. <clears throat> the IV is the quickest, the quickest high mm-hmm. and most intense high. Hmm. So it was, I don't know if it was more of people switching, like the amount of heroin probably went down. And I think new users edged away from heroin. We're like, fuck that. I got to use a needle and we're going to the quick high of crack. Got it. Cause it was, cheaper didn't have to use a needle yeah just wondering what that was like for somebody who's used to shooting downers to go snorting uppers it's weird i don't know (laughs) i don't do those things man if you did maybe you could write us and let us know how that felt well aside from the cocaine crack epidemic happening um, a lot of these killers were actually able to be active for so long for many reasons uh, firstly, DNA was just not a thing that police knew what to do with. Uh, I I mean, they, they collected samples of DNA, which is a good thing so that in the 2000s, when they were able to actually use it, they had it available. Um, but, you know, you collect these things, and you know, uh, sperm samples, for instance, or saliva samples or whatever. You just collect it as evidence. But, um, ah. It's just not uh, usable. And that's one of the reasons they were able to go on for so long. Um, And actually, interesting, um, the first ever serial killer to be caught by using DNA evidence was the Southside Strangler. Uh, And he was caught through, I think, familial DNA, I believe. I'm not sure exactly. But he, he was the first ever serial killer to be caught using DNA. Hmm. Well, that's pro- we're definitely going to cover that dude at some point. I would imagine. Well, yeah, it's kind of the same thing uh, as is what we're covering today, but maybe. Well, it takes place in the same area, right? Yeah. L.A. Yeah. Weren't they? But on the, but on the south side. Yeah, is it's kind so of the other actually, one was South Central. So I, no, I don't know so the areas. We, the Hillside Stranglers and then the South Side Strangler. There were two oh, different. Oh, those are two different people. Mm. Mm. Okay. Yeah, but uh, 
the Southside Strangler was they there was a couple I don't know how to phrase this, but there was a couple more sex workers that were murdered in the at the same time. Um yeah, so they didn't Oh yeah, believe. so there were several other sex workers murdered and they didn't believe them to be related to the Southside Strangler or what's the other one's name? Uh, hillside hillside yes and there was another stalker one sorry but i can't remember um the night stalker as well but i think in this specific area there was uh, i think it was a normal it, he didn't have a psychonym but okay. yeah there were there were at least three or four yeah but they didn't believe them to all be related um but the rise of the murders and the uproar being created by the public urged the police to bring in 19 more detectives and create a specific task force called the Southside Killer Task Force, a specific unit dedicated to retracing the steps of victims and alerting possible future victims of what was happening. Yeah, so this so, we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but it, it kind of just goes to show that it in the moments of the mid-80s, they didn't really know that there were so many active serial killers um, at the time. So they were like, they had a dedicated, like they... They finally did something and made this task force, but it was for one of them and they didn't really understand that or want to believe that it was more than one. And they didn't do it because they wanted to. They did it because of public pressure and they were looking really stupid for every time another sex worker would pop up. Yeah. So you're saying they created future police and they were able to alert future victims? Well, they just set... Like, like minority report no i think they were they were so, going out and trying to like just put it out there like um alerting to be, people to, the, to, to the be knowledgeable like, be careful yeah, yes to the, yes to the yeah. other okay. sex workers to like spread the word and like because you know they're, they're probably not sitting in their homes on the couches watching tv or the news so they don't maybe know what's going on but they're just trying to alert them yes what they're doing is illegal and they're aware of it but they want them to know hey we're not here to arrest you we're here to alert you that this is happening in your area and you need to be careful because a John is a John and they're just trying to spread the word without making it feel like they're going after people to arrest them. Yeah. We just wanted to uh, kind of like emphasize how many serial killers there were at the time with, by mentioning this task force. But um, another reason that these serial killers did get away with this for so long is because the, the, the victims, these killers chose, they go for what's known in true crime world as the less dead meaning colored people and even less fought for is colored women and way less fought for is colored women who have the oldest profession in the world sex work gay men also score low on the police's give a fuck radar as seen many times with people like Dahmer and randy Kraft, who basically only killed gay men uh they the police were like oh a gay man died uh i am not touching that with a 10-foot pole you know, I'm not gay and I don't want to investigate a gay man because I might be gay afterwards. I don't know what the fuck their train of thought was, but they just didn't care about gay deaths. Um, yeah, it wasn't as uh, widely accepted. So it was just like, a yeah, they dug their own grave. Yeah. They're just like kind of like they were saying like, oh, they asked for it. If they weren't gay, they wouldn't be dead. Like that's kind of the, the feeling I get from that. Yeah. Mm. I'm with so, you on that one. Yeah. So on the other hand, uh, I can understand that finding an elusive killer that is capable of blending in with everybody around them is difficult, especially when there are like a thousand murders a year and some of them belong to possibly 10 serial killers. 
And I know that it takes extensive man hours and detective work to figure out which killer uh, killed who or, you know, maybe it's just due to massive gang element because we didn't even talk about the gang element in L.A., which is, you know, responsible for many, many, many murders. But that was also there. And I, I get it. Believe me, like I'm not saying police work is easy. I, I just you have to think of it from the victim's perspective, how it looks. Um, and it's just when it's evident that if these victims were not drug addicted sex workers of color and if they were a white female way more effort would be put into solving that crime and actually getting it like actually getting it done and you know not taking decades to capture a monster that is terrorizing their underserved community these are real people regardless of their color and profession and should be treated as such Regardless of if you think I'm right about my thoughts on police giving non-white victims less than 100% effort is honestly not relevant because the families and victims of these brutal attacks 100% believe this, this to be actual fact and a lot of times causes things to go unreported because someone will walk into a police station to report a crime or even a dead body that they found. But even though they were going in there doing their civic duty, they won't walk out of that police station and end up in cuffs themselves because of you know them being sex workers or having a drug history or whatever and this just causes distrust of those that should be protecting and serving the community not demonizing it so yeah these impoverished communities say fuck 12 and acab because that's what they have been shown it's on the police to show the communities that are underserved that they are actually there to help them you know and giving just as much effort to colored sex workers as you know the night soccer killed a bunch of white women he was solved fairly quickly he was only around for like a year maybe two you know so it just you you react to what you are shown and the police in this decade especially really most decades in los angeles are not putting you know showing their best to these underserved communities so there was a lot of crime and shitty things happening in South Central LA, but today we are focusing on the victims of one specific killer who terrorized black women from 1985 to 1989. Damn, four years? Uh, yeah. Um, like we said, this is a three-part, so there is there is more to it, but I think for this episode, we're going to stick to the 80s. So as he's been coined, we all know he's the grim sleeper, and his victims were nobody to him. He discarded them as trash, shot them all with the same 25 caliber gun, and he even gained their attention or solicited their services while in the presence of his good friends. His first victim was Deborah Jackson. She was a 29-year-old waitress that lived with her girlfriend in Inglewood. She had a troubled life, lost her children due to drug abuse, and even went to rehab but still had issues with drug use after. She was found on August 10th of 1985 with three gunshot wounds to the chest from a 25 caliber gun. The wounds were close range and in a downward position. The shots hit her heart and severed her spinal cord, causing almost immediate death. There was gunshot residue found in the wounds, and due to the state of her body when they found her, they weren't able to check for possible sexual assault. They found phone numbers in her purse, but nothing to ID her. A fingerprint specialist used latent print testing to pull partials from her left hand because her right hand was too badly decomposed, and they were able to identify her and she was found with maggots coming from all of her orifices, and the pictures of her lifeless body showed that a lot of physical abuse had occurred. Damn, so if there was gunshot residue 
Yeah, it was in the touching them. That was that was, was touching her. Yeah, yeah, that's that's one of the calling cards. How they know these are all linked is not only the we'll get into it, but not only the twenty-five caliber gun he used, but the fact that these are touching skin, point-blank gunshots. Yeah, that there's gunshot residue inside their bodies. Like this is straight up, uh, touch. Like like I said, just touching their skin, pulling the trigger. Damn. So. Like I said earlier, uh, well, just like a minute ago, um, at this time, people were holding vigils and protests because the community felt that the police were not giving enough shits to do something about the murdered women in South Los Angeles because they were black and sex workers. Um, they felt this way because in July of 1986, there were a total of 18 other unsolved murders that were happening despite the police creating the Southside Killer Task Force in January that Emily had mentioned earlier. In response to the perceived lackadaisical response from the LAPD, a woman named Margaret Prescott, who hosts a radio show called Sojourner Truth, learned that 11 black women had been raped, shot, or strangled to death. Their bodies were dumped in bushes or trash receptacles along Western Avenue. Alarmed, she rallied fellow activists and founded the Black Coalition Fighting Back Serial Killers to get the word out in affected neighborhoods and also to pressure law enforcement to step up efforts to apprehend the killer. Uh, of course, the LAPD didn't take too kindly to the formation of this group and even called them asinine and insensitive to, to the detectives working the case. To Prescott and her coalition, though, it was clear the same amount of effort that was given to solve the infamous Night Soccer case was not afforded to the women in South L.A., the coalition decided they wanted to pressure the city to up the current $10,000 reward to catch the South Side Strangler to $25,000 because at the time, the people of Los Angeles would never have even dreamed that there would be multiple other serial killers active at the same exact time and assumed if they caught the South Side Strangler, the murders would stop. Of course, they were wrong. But to make matters worse, the community started spreading rumors about not only who the killer was, which actually a lot of people thought he was a cop because he was getting away with it for so long. Um, but a cab. <laughs> thank you, Will. Uh, but the you know what's weird is the other major theory aside from the, it being a cop who's going around here killing was that these women were being used in snuff films. What is a huh. snuff film? Uh, uh, it is a form of pornography is it for i guess it is <clears throat> yeah people get off on it but it's basically like you're videoing like brutal shit for pleasure well it, it, it's called a snuff film because you are it's a tape of a woman being usually being brutally sexually assaulted and at the end of it they kill the girl in, on camera that is a thing that has its own title like yes what the fuck yeah Wow. Mm. Yeah. Oh, I did not realize that. So, oh, no. His second victim was Henrietta Wright, a 34-year-old mother of five children who was found one week before her 35th birthday on August 12th of 1986 in an alley near West Vernon Avenue. She was found partially hidden under a mattress and a green blanket. Her arm was on a pair of men's pants and her mouth had been stuffed with a men's shirt. She had been shot twice at close range with a 25 caliber gun and her toxicology screen showed that she had cocaine, morphine, and codeine in her system at the time of her death. Police found 38 caliber slugs in the alley near her body but quickly determined that those were unrelated. 
How do you? Okay, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but you, it's fine. Uh, how, how do you decide that? I mean, well, I guess you can tell by the and the bullet that was left inside of her. Um, but just imagine, I. How do you live in a place where there's next to a body there's that's slugs. what I've been trying to say this whole time about this there place. There's 38 caliber slugs, and you're like, oh, that's not from her. No, that's that's some, not related. That's somebody else's. Bullets. Side note. I don't. I don't mean to laugh. Movie, but that's the movie that we saw about this. They're literally interviewing people in an alleyway, and there's just it's broad daylight, and gunshots are just flying, and people are running towards them, not away yeah. from them. Yeah. And then there's the, it's a bunch of British dudes doing the documentary, and the the guy with them, uh, who lives in the hood, is just like, "You guys should probably leave." And he's like, "Where do I go?" They're literally in an alley with nothing. Yeah. It's like garage doors. Everything's closed, and he's just standing there, looking like, "What the hell?" Yeah, he he doesn't know what to do. He's just kind of standing there, like, "Uh, fuck." And then the other guy's like, he looks like he's reaching into his shorts to pull out maybe his piece and shoot back, but he's like going towards the gunshot sounds. It's it's crazy. Whoa, which which piece are you talking about? Sorry, uh, I don't his know. Gap. His Glock. Oh, that's what it's called? Whatever. Gat? Oh, gat. whatever. That was a gack. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just live in the South and be immune to all of this. I mean... Never heard of a ghetto bird. Now you're like, a gack? The South are pretty gun heavy, okay? Like, I just didn't know that. <laughs> so, <laughs> moving on from my lack of knowledge... Um, detectives from the Southside Serial Task Force were called to the scene but quickly passed on this case because they were focused on other cases that seemed more important to them. How they made that determination, I'm unsure of. But later... No, I think you know, I think you know why. Well, yes, but it didn't specifically state that the cases they were more concerned with were of white women. They did say that they were of sex workers but didn't specify. They just were, you know, at this point, unrelated. But they do... Gain traction, I guess so. Um, Henrietta's fingerprints were in the system and the police were able to begin notifying her family. She had a troubled home life also. Her mother had passed away when she was 15 and she was raised by her stepfather. They fought and it wasn't a great environment, so she was in and out a lot. She had two sons and after the birth of her second son, she left his father due to his worsening abuse. She was thriving as a single mother, got a job at a school cafeteria, second job as a waitress, bought a car, began bowling for fun. Life was good. She found out she was having a little girl and she was so happy. Her family had started, stated that that's when her downward spiral began after the birth of her daughter in November of 1977. Her home on 78th and Central Avenue burned down and she lost everything she owned. Henrietta and her daughter had to move in with one of her sisters while her two sons moved in with their fathers or their father's families. And this was when Henrietta began using drugs and her main focus shifted from her children to solely drugs. Her niece, Irene, stated that her decline happened fast and said Henrietta even began stealing from anyone she could. She actually stole some of Irene's husband's guns to sell or trade them for drugs. Irene forgave her, but that spiral continued. She became pregnant and gave birth to her fourth child in January of 82, and Henrietta's other sister, Ella Mae, had to take over parenting her children when Henrietta literally left the hospital after giving birth without her children. She gave birth to her fifth and final child in January of 86, and she gave that child to a neighbor, and she continued seeking her high by any means necessary. Sadly, she lost everything to crack well before she was murdered. On August 29th of 1986, Henrietta's case gave a lead. 
the LAPD Scientific Investigation Unit notified the detective on the case that the bullets taken from Henrietta's chest were fired from the exact same 25 caliber gun that was used to kill Deborah Jackson. This man. No, go ahead. No, no, you go first. I was just going to say, man, if you just had a sit down conversation with a lot of these um, sex workers, what a tale they would tell you. Yeah. Like the amount of abuse they go through. Like, do you always wonder? I guess you don't always wonder. I always wonder, but, you know, you see the homeless people and, and, and these sex workers and you're like, how did you, how did you wind up here? That's that's a story that, that you don't want to hear. Like it's, it's so terrible and no one thinks of the humanity behind. Yeah. These are real people. These these people. And they just like, Oh, they're addicted to drugs and they only want money for drugs. Like, yeah, but take a step back and, and try and think about how they got into this position. That is exactly what, led to me having difficulties with this case and i've said it several times to octavio like i have to humanize these people like i cannot just say no one wakes up one day and says i want to be a prostitute or a sex worker or you know a drug Drug user or anything like that like these all happen with some sort of event that leads to them and whether it's drugs first or sex worker you know, it doesn't matter. Like something has happened in these people's lives and their stories deserve to be told whether they're exactly the same as the last person's or not. And it's very sad that they do all get grouped and just kind of discarded by not just this killer, but the public, the police and society in general still today. I know a lot of people, I don't, I don't know if I know them personally for, you know, I don't want to say I know them personally, like the people I know would say this, but uh, people like this, even though we, because we've been doing this podcast, we see them as people and victims and whether they are quote unquote bad people or not, they don't deserve to die, especially as brutally as they did. But I can think of people who would say, fuck them, they're drug users, they're sex workers, you know, they're a scourge on society. And that's all they're seen as like, it's like, you know, it's whatever like it's almost like good i'm someone put her out of her misery but that's just such a callous way to look at life instead of seeing past issues that these are still real people these are still they have feelings they're they're, they don't have the best lot in life and a lot of times it's not necessarily their fault you know what i mean and it's just like mental illness like yeah. There's tons of things that are like they got dealt a terrible hand and then unfortunately couldn't find the help needed to better their life. And and sometimes you have ones are. that have been privileged their entire lives, yet broken ankle in high school, got prescribed pain pills, had a doctor that kept prescribing them, became addicted, tried to wean, couldn't, switch to heroin. Like things happen. Like I yeah. see that. I know people that that are very privileged that have had that happen to them. And it's not like a choice. They woke up one day and said, I think I'm going to become a piece of shit heroin addict. No, like there's something going on. And honestly, like opiates are not just something to say, Oh, that's, you could just stop if you wanted to. Like I've never been addicted to them, but I've seen people who are, and they literally say they feel like they're being killed or they're dying. So 
They seek their next high. They're not getting high to be high. They're getting high to not feel like they're dying. Yeah. <sighs> so the Grim Sleeper's third victim was a little different because there was a 911 call placed to the police and investigators believe this phone call was actually placed by the murderer. And we will play that call first and then we will talk about what made them think the caller was the killer. Central. I see police agent. Yes, I'd like to put a, a murder or a dead body or something. Where at? The address is 1346 East 56th Street in the alley. Yeah, they dropped the office driving a white and blue Dodge van. One T Z T seven four six. You know, he like, he threw her out. The only thing is hanging out of this, like he threw a gas tank on top of her and uh, and the uh, only thing you can see out is her feet. Okay, what's your name? Huh? What's your name? Oh, I don't stand to know. <laughs> I know too many people. Okay then, bye bye. Right. Okay then, bye bye. <laughs> I don't want to I know too many people. I don't like I don't want to laugh at that. Did that yeah, happen? it's it's but it, it's it's very it's it's hard like to think like that he's calling about an actual body, but I I can't help like the way he talks is just like oh, just a casual conversation. Yeah, like, it's just nah, so he threw a body out. What's your name, sir? What? What? <laughs> nah, I know too many people. Bye bye now. <laughs> so like aside from how weird it is that the caller laughed when asked his name, it was even like to me more odd that the caller was able to see exactly what was happening despite being like a good distance away uh, because I think they tracked it to the local uh, payphone. So like, how are you seeing this from the payphone when the address is like a, like a hundred meters away or, you know, a hundred feet away, whatever it was. Um, and so with he, the description he gives, he gives the color of what kind, like the kind of van, the color scheme, the blue and white, and he gives the exact license plate number. Um, and the, the, that's crazy because we'll, we'll try to post pictures of it uh, if we can find it. But the license plate is like partially obstructed by like in a, by a ladder that goes up. Like there's one of the rungs is like a third over the license plate itself. So that's just strange. Like how did from that distance, how did he get such accurate information? Like this is all suspect. And that is honestly one of the main reasons that because not only did he describe exactly how the victim was left, um, he described the van with the plates. So those plates, when the police ran them, it turned out uh, that it did in fact belong to a blue and white van. And this van was owned by a local church, but that local church is not around anymore. And uh, the person who's in charge of the keys at the time gave a like uh, anonymous interview where the lady said that she doesn't know how the keys got lost. She usually keeps them either in her purse or locked in the, the church office. So they don't know how whoever this was got, the keys to that van in the first place. Hmm. Hmm. So I stole them out of the office. Yeah. Or knew how to hotwire a vehicle or knew someone in the church to give them to him. Yeah. All three very good possibilities. So this third victim was Barbara Ware. She was 23 and she was shot once in the chest on January 10th, 1987. The dispatcher sent out a message after that call of a possible 187, the California Penal Code for Murder, to Newton. 187. What? 187. You don't hear, you don't hear it all the time? 
No, that's oh, not. Is that, a, is that literally only a, a California penal yes, code? Yes, we don't yeah. do that. Here, oh. it's like 10 Man, I grew up. It's 10 codes. I grew, or... up, I grew up knowing 187 like the back of my hand. Like, Yeah, every what, state has different uh, It's signals codes. and 10 codes here. Like our no. golf for golf port it is. I don't know about like the state. Yet again, do, something new. We do 10 codes here. Okay. But it's the it's the actual penal code numbers that change based on yeah. The states. Yeah. So um, they sent that to the Newton division commanders. It was past midnight when they went to the scene and they almost didn't see her body. They were about to leave when they saw her. She was placed under cardboard boxes, leaves, and plastic bags. She was face down with a bag wrapped around her head and half of her body and a gas tank from a vehicle was on her legs, pinning her to the ground, just as the caller had described. She was covered in dirt and her shirt was pulled up, exposing her chest. Once the bag was removed, they could see that her face had blood smeared on it and physical abuse was apparent. She was found with no identification, so she was tagged as a Jane Doe. Her fingerprints came back with a match and gave them a name to notify her family. Barbara, who went by Beth to her family, lost her mother from brain aneurysm when she was 12 years old. She moved in with her father and stepmother, and she quickly started acting out. Her new home was strict, centered around church, and nothing like the lax environment from her recovering drug addict mother providing. She began fighting in school, and police were involved many times. She had a child at age 16 and began doing drugs and became a sex worker, which she was arrested several times for. She loved Sherm, which was a cigarette dipped in a liquid laced with LSD. There's a name for that? I didn't know what that was exactly. I might. Oh, you never heard of Sherm before? I really haven't. That's no. how you like say I it. said, I am not well versed in drugs. I'm not even kidding. Like, I am not well versed. I've heard of the liquid dipped thing, but I didn't know it was called that. And yeah, I didn't know it was sure. a cigarette. So I I don't get it how that works. I, but whatever. That, they, do it with the, they do it with marijuana too. Oh. But didn't we watch like a documentary about, uh, what was it? Crocod- Crocodili? Crocodilla? Yeah. Uh, crocod- Crocodile? Crocodile. Crocodile, yeah. yeah. And they don't they dip that in? in yes. Dipped in? Yeah. That's like, I don't but, remember what country that was primarily from, but yeah. Yeah, but I went with the formaldehyde. Yeah, yes. yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Jeez, that's. See, I know a lot about drugs. I just don't do them. <laughs> <laughs> I see, dude, I, I don't do them. And I, aside from weed, dude, I don't know anything about the administration or the uh, consumption. consumption of hard drugs i feel like i should know more because of the amount of times i ask myself the same questions like i would remember it but it's like i forget i get them mixed up yeah like i'm not even really sure what lsd is so is that the one it's like colorful that's yeah when you see colors acid acid oh okay no. I see. lsd is actually government made literally it's just yeah it it's chemical mm. oh <clears throat> I guess yeah they start doing drugs out of tests on on soldiers and yeah of lsd yeah Wow, actually, there's one, uh, uh, there's, well, I saw it on I saw it on YouTube that it was a uh, some British soldiers that they like. Mm-hmm. Hey, they gave them LSD just to see how they would react to it, and they're like, they were tasked in a military training to like do certain things, and you could just see them start losing it. <laughs> like, yeah, uh, they actually, just sit down and start laughing and shit. Recently, the last podcast did a like five part deep dive into uh, what's that program called? Uh, uh, where the they marijuana one? No, no. Where they try to make um, killers like sleepers, 
that, that program that the, oh the Manchurian Candidate kind of what's the other name for the, the uh the what damn it yeah uh, is this a fake thing no 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 not oh, at all literally thing. it's a very real MK Ultra MK Ultra oh, okay. yeah they did the same thing they that's where LSD came from but yeah uh, last podcast did a five part deep dive into MK Ultra where they talk very very deeply about LSD and what they did with it and it is wild. And it's all true. It's all proven to be true. Hmm. Yeah, government did a bunch of weird things. Well, that is true. Um, diving back in. Sorry about yeah. this sidestep, but um, she was beaten up many times for not paying debts, and she attempted suicide. And her child was placed in foster care at age four. She went to rehab and seemed to be doing well upon completion of the rehab. And she had a relationship with her child again, but drugs became her focus, and she quickly lost everything to the hold to the hold of needing her next high. The same day of her funeral, January fifteenth, the LAPD Scientific Investigation Unit released the details of the bullet that was pulled from Barbara's body was the same from the same gun used to kill Deborah Jackson and Henrietta Wright. So, so they're connecting the dots. Yeah. Yes. His fourth victim was Bernita Sparks, a 26-year-old that went out shopping on April 15, 1987 and never returned home. She had been shot, strangled, and beaten. Two men found a white shirt wadded up on the ground behind a furniture store where they worked and picked it up to see that it was soaked in blood. They then looked inside of a dumpster and saw a foot with a gray sock sticking up from under a pile of garbage. She appeared to be tossed headfirst into the dumpster and her left side was draped in a dirty gray blanket. Her jeans were unbuttoned and several buttons on her shirt were undone, exposing her chest and a bullet hole. This made the police think that the killer dressed her after killing her. There also appeared to be a handprint on her lower back and there were ligature marks on her right side of her neck and gunpowder on her shirt, making it appear as if she was shot at very close range. She was also visibly beaten and there were not any shell casings found at the scene. The area where she was dumped was known for gang and drug activity, and she was labeled Jane Doe 25 when tagged into the medical examiner's office. The LAPD didn't find her in the system, but her fingerprints, by her fingerprints, but the LA County Sheriff's Office did because they have access to 13 other programs, I guess, to run systems. And they were able to find her in the system from prior arrests for destroying evidence and possession of a controlled substance. Her mother, Eva, was notified by detectives and stated that she saw her the night before she went to bed and that Bernita said she was going to the liquor store. The bullet removed from her chest also matched the bullets to prior cases of Deborah Jackson, Henrietta Wright, and Barbara Ware. So this guy clearly has uh, an MO, I guess people call it. Um, the, the, the biggest thing is the bullets that matches, you know, the other bullets and same caliber and whatnot, but also the, Discarding. like we talked about... Yeah, also, like we talked about, the closeness of the gunshot itself and then the the brutality of how he treats these women and leaves them for dead, like garbage. Like, that's that's clearly, aside yeah, from... the shit out of them. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah he, but aside from, like, the bullet itself, there are other factors that do, for sure, indicate that this is the same dude going around doing this. Yeah, and this particular one... Um, the dumpster would have been picked up, so she probably would have never been found had those guys not been behind the building at that same time. It would have been dumped, and she would have been in a landfill and probably never, ever yeah. seen. So No one would even know about her. Yeah. 
Um, his fifth victim was 26-year-old Mary Lowe, who left for a Halloween night party in 1987 but never returned. Her body was found in an alley near Western Avenue around 10 a.m. on November 1st by a father and his nine-year-old son. Oh, shit. Her body was face down between a wall and a bush. Her blouse had been lifted up, her jeans were unzipped, and she wasn't wearing any underwear. A blue purse with a broken crack pipe in it was located near her body. She had been shot at close range with a 25 caliber gun, and her toxicology results showed that she had alcohol and cocaine in her system. The police were able to piece together her transient lifestyle and spoke with many people who knew her. She had particular locations she frequented, frequented as a sex worker, and they were able to learn that she didn't finish school past 11th grade, and she held many jobs before becoming a sex worker. She had eight arrests on file, one being for Grand Theft Auto and seven being for prostitution. Sorry to use that word, but that's what it's called. On November 4th, the link to the bullets from the other cases were made, and the Southside Serial Killer Task Force took over this case. Many people were interviewed about Mary. Many people that were interviewed about Mary assumed that she had been murdered for not paying her debts for the drugs because that was a habit that she was known for. So this case actually almost slipped by and did not get listed in the Southside Serial Killers like task force book because everyone interviewed said that she didn't pay her drug debts so so I just assume this was street justice yes the gun is um the really linking factor but they even tried to discredit that saying that it could have been any other 25 caliber yeah but I assume they they tested the bullet itself and found that it was a match yes and but even then that's not a very popular Caliber. No, 25 caliber is not popular at all. No. It's either 22 or like 38. Nine, yeah. Is a 25 nine bigger nil. than a 22 or smaller? Bigger. Bigger. Okay. So 22 small. It's 0.22 and then 0.25. And they have like 0.28 and 0.38. Yeah, they're all, they get bigger. Oh, okay. So his sixth victim was 22 year old Lucretia Jefferson. She was a party girl, according to her friends and her mother, who worried about her all the time. She lived like she had nine lives and dreamed of becoming a doctor. She became addicted to crack, and her life quickly spiraled out of control. At 9.20 a.m. on January 30th, 1988, a woman screamed from her behind her home because she found a foot sticking out from under a mattress. This alerted a neighbor, who then went to see what was going on, and he lifted the mattress to find the body of a black female. She was lying on her back against and against a cement wall. She was brought to the coroner's office around 10 a.m. She was very small, less than 100 pounds, and probably in her early 20s. She was found with a napkin over her face, written in pen, the word AIDS. She, the medical examiner told the detectives that she was leaning more towards a drug overdose because the patient or the victim was fully dressed in a green knit dress, jacket, and shoes but she didn't have any underwear on. There was also a crack pipe in her coat pocket. But when she removed her clothing, she realized that she was wrong about the cause of death. She found two bullet wounds to the left side of her chest, still no other identifying factors, and her fingerprints gave them the ID they needed, and they began to notify her next of kin. Her mother told them that she feared her pimp may have been involved in her murder because she didn't pay him. 
While the detectives were continuing to investigate and discuss with other departments about the related cases, they were able to confirm that Lucretia was also killed with the same 25 caliber gun as the other five women. How messed up is it? Like, I don't know what inflection the mother gave while saying that it might have been her pimp, but why did that sound so casual to me? Like, oh, it might have been her pimp that just shot her because she wasn't paying her. Like, why is that such a... It almost seems normalized, doesn't it? Um... This yeah, especially one, for your tw- your twenty year old daughter. Yeah, like yeah, I was probably the pimp. This one specifically, like, um, and it's sorry, my lack of inflection, and I'm reading, I guess, but um, the mom said that this was a like a contributing, like she knew that this had to have been, like she was insistent it was the pimp, because the pimp had actually approached the mom or sent people to approach the mom and relatives in the past to like collect for her. So, like, she was not paying her pimp the money that she was due, and this had been an issue. She had shown up, you know, being beaten before by her pimp for not paying and things like that. So, the mom was just kind of probably at this point very numb to the fact that, one, her daughter is dead, but two, like, just what else could it be? She's just assuming that that's what's going on. No one's going to automatically assume that their daughter is victim of a serial killer, I wouldn't think. No, usually your mind doesn't go there. And, and usually the most logical thing and to her yeah. that was the most logical thing and and like we've learned most murders are someone you know relatively closely you know mm-hmm. so i mean i guess it makes sense but it just to me the part that strikes me is that it really does seem like casual like oh the, the pimp probably killed her kind of like that happens you know so often yeah and i, I think that it's more so of like an exasperating thing to probably deal with and talk about because that was a very repetitive thing. I noticed that pimp involvement and accusations because, you know, they, they need to eat too and they don't want to pay them. And I think it's just more sad that the, the family is just so like, I don't want to say okay with, but just being like, yeah, she's a sex worker. Yeah, as a pimp. I think if they right? just kind of yeah, just seem very hands offy, like whatever she made her bed. Yeah. And it just could be the way that like I'm portraying, like coming across, like I'm sure yeah, these it, families were like a, very dedicated and loving, but at one, what point do you stop like the mental anguish that you're giving and causing yourself worrying about this person when you, you can't change their lifestyle? Like you have to take a step back at some point and you'll never stop loving them, never stop worrying about them. But it could literally eat you alive to sit and wallow in their life choices. So like, I get it, but at the same time, it does seem a little passive maybe, but. Yeah. Like I said, there's no way to know how she said it in the moment. Uh, And she could, she could be upset about it, but genuinely believe that it was just like, Oh, her pimp killed her. And like I said, the sad part is that that seemed normalized. Like it's her go-to was, yeah, she was killed by her pimp, even if she is emotional and upset about it. Yeah. Yeah. The seventh victim was a 22-year-old. Her name was Alicia Monique Alexander. She went by Monique, who left to go to a shopping center in September of 1988 and never returned home. She kissed her dad on the cheek before leaving and asked if he needed anything from the store. He stated he didn't need anything other than for her to return home. She did not return home, and the family began to panic. She had recently developed a drug habit after getting involved with a rough crowd and acting out in school. And six days after she left home, 
some children were walking their dogs when the dogs started digging around near a large rubber foam mattress. Not sure what that is, but they, the children saw foot and ran to find the next adult they could and drug the adult over there. And he lifted it up and he found a badly decomposed body of a black female. She had a small caliber bullet wound to the left chest. She was brought in labeled Jane Doe 59 because she was the 59th unidentified woman brought into the coroner's office in 1988. They couldn't complete a full sexual assault kit due to her decomposition, but her fingerprints came back and gave a positive identification for them to notify her family. Her toxicology showed that she had alcohol and cocaine in her system at the time of her death, and the detectives handling the Lucretia Jefferson case were present actually during the autopsy and they confirmed that the same gun killed her just as the other six victims. Her family understandably took this death very hard. Her brother blamed himself for his felonious behavior and was actually in, he was cooperating with the police during this time, but had a prior bench warrant. I'm not 100% certain how this came to light, but he was arrested and in jail on the day of his sister's funeral. Yeah, the what happened there was that, um, like we talked about earlier, a lot of people don't come forward because even though they have relevant information, they are afraid they won't leave the um, the police precinct, right? So he blamed himself because he owed some, or he had recently robbed a like a drug they deal. Had been in a gunfight in their backyard. Yeah. And he had been shot actually. Like her two yeah. two brothers. I didn't go into that because it doesn't necessarily, you know shed light on her or her yeah, case itself but, but that's yeah but he so he blamed himself for getting involved with people like that and thought that it was revenge on him to kill his sister so him feeling immense guilt actually went to he swallowed his pride and went to the police officers to confess his sins uh you know being involved in drugs and getting into a gunfight and because of that and whatever priors he had the police actually took him into custody and he was forced to miss his sister's funeral that's terrible yeah yeah Yeah. so there is another victim one that got away anitra margett washington who was attacked on november 20th of 1988 Now, Anitra is very different from the other girls because for the first time in four years, he actually left a survivor, or at least the first time we are aware that he left a survivor because, again, it's very possible he attacked other women, but they were too afraid to speak up because they were sex workers or, you know, for their drug abuse. So it's very possible that this wasn't the first survivor, but it's the first one that we know about. So, Anitra's encounter with the Grim Sleeper starts out on a regular Saturday night in Southern California, meaning there was a 4.5 magnitude earthquake that night. But Anitra was getting ready to go out to a party with her friends and she didn't give a shit about an earthquake. Being a mother of two, what? People, you still do things after an earthquake? A 4.5 ain't that bad. Yeah, it's not bad. Yeah, you'll feel it. Yeah, it's a little rumble. rumble. Yeah, a little rumble. You'll feel it, but it's not, you know, it's not that bad. It's like, oh, was that an earthquake? Yeah. All right, cool. Hey, let me go on Facebook and ask everyone, hey, did you guys all feel that earthquake? <laughs> uh, yeah, make sure to post it on Facebook. On the yeah. neighborhood page. Okay, well, didn't know that. Yeah, uh, hurricanes are prevalent down here. Uh, earthquakes are, to me, more terrifying and like daily in California. So, 
it, yeah, but you can know, still do stuff after an earthquake. It's not like a yeah. hurricane where it wipes yeah. out the whole city center. Yeah. We don't want power for days, but an earthquake, what it could lead to, I've I've seen that um, tsunami movie. That's scary. <laughs> yeah. To me, like in like when it's a strong earthquake, like a 7 to 10 or whatever, I think they are more terrifying than a hurricane, not only because of the damage it caused, but you don't know that they're coming. At least here, there's like six, seven days ahead of time. Like, hey, there's a hurricane on its way. It's building from a category one to a category three. Uh, you should probably think about leaving. Like there's, there's plenty of warning. But it's scarier because you... Most of the time, if it's that bad, you don't you come back to nothing, which yeah. I've, I've done. It's not fun. <clears throat> now here you can kind of hear an earthquake coming. Yeah, but you a couple the, minutes you, before. Not even that. Like ten seconds before, you hear a rumbling. You're like, what the fuck is that noise? And then the house starts fucking shaking yeah. itself apart. I, I remember sitting in my apartment in Hemet, um, and uh, it was probably like a six or seven. A magnitude i want to say but i could literally see i was standing on a sitting in my couch in my living room and i could see my kitchen and i could literally it was a rolling earthquake so i could literally see my kitchen like angle up like over my head and then slide back down like i could see the motion happen the whole building was like my kitchen is like shit shifting up and then it just kind of slides like a almost like a seesaw like it just slides back down that can feel, feel my side start to lift i'm like uh, i should probably get out of this building <laughs> But yeah, yeah. To me, in my opinion, earthquakes are much more terrifying. Just simply for the warning factor. Like, yes, hurricanes are devastating because you your life could be destroyed, but you don't know when an earthquake is going to hit. Uh, no. Again, I digress. So Anitra, being a mother of two, she was ready to get down and do a little partying. So before she left, she lit up a joint that was laced with cocaine and then hit the town. As she was walking down the street, an orange Pinto caught her eye because this Ford Pinto was decked out with a racing stripe. And everybody knows racing stripes add at least 60 hertz Right? I, I think, don't know what that is. Yeah. About 60 hertz 60 hertz Yeah. Yeah. A racing stripe? I don't know what a hertz is. Come on, you know, hertz Hertzpur. Makes the car go fast. Yeah, Herspur. from... Just like if you have like a boosted sticker on your, or you have like one of those stickers with like the bandaid on it, it adds like an extra 10 horse purse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So or, this uh, baby on board. Right. That adds negative 25. <laughs> um, so, um, I'm yeah. I'm California, bro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those are the, they drive, they drive the fastest on the freeways. I'm like, oh, you got a baby on board? Zoom, zoom. <laughs> Yeah, so she she saw this Pinto, which is a very, in the 80s, a very common car, especially in Los Angeles, because of its size and affordability. But this one, like I said, had a racing stripe, so she took notice. Anyway, the Pinto pulled up alongside her and started hollering at Anitra, but she ignored him. The car continued to follow her and offered her a ride. She looked inside the car and saw a black guy who was neatly dressed, and all Anitra could think was... Is this fucking nerd really trying to holler at me? Don't holler at me from the car. You have to get out and talk to me. So the guy got out of his car with his khakis and buttoned-down shirt. Where are you headed? I'm going to a friend's house. Can I take you? She just kind of gave him a side-eye and started to walk away. Come on, what are you going to do with your friend? We're going to a party. Let me take you over to your friends. Nah, that's okay, I'm good. See, that's what's wrong with you black women. People can't be nice to you. 
Excuse me? And after giving him another look, decided that this guy looked nice enough. Plus, it was kind of brave for such a short man to approach a woman way out of his league. So she agreed to let him drive her to her friend's house. He made a left turn instead of going straight. And she said, uh, you going the wrong way. I just got to make a quick stop at my uncle's house to get some money. It only take a few minutes. He pulled up to a house on 81st Street and she lit up a cigarette while she waited. Anitra had decided that if he wasn't back in 10 minutes, she was going to get out and start walking. The guy only took a few minutes and jumped back in the car. They drove off and he said something that Anitra could not understand because she was paying attention to the song on the radio. And then the guy had a noticeable shift in his demeanor and went from a straight-laced guy to talking like a thug and for some reason he was calling Anitra Brenda. That's not my name. The guy didn't say a word, but in one fluid motion, he reached over to her side, opened the glove box, and pulled out a gun, put it to her chest, and pulled the trigger. This happened so fast, she didn't have time to register what was happening, and, sh and she reached for the door. Don't touch that handle, bitch. I'll shoot you again. Why'd you shoot me? Because you're always dogging me out, Brenda. I don't even know you. As she questioned her life choices that got her to this moment, she put her hands to her chest where she was shot and said, I think you need to get me to the hospital. I can't do that. If I die, I'm going to haunt you. You better take care of my kids. Anitra was losing consciousness and all she could think about was what her kids were doing while she was in this random man's car dying. And then she passed out. Can we just pause for a second and just Gosh. talk about like what what's going through your head at this moment like you you just happened to take a chance on this nice guy uh and now you're shot in the car and you're just just thinking about what are my kids doing right now like are they okay uh what you know what is what are they doing while i'm dying in this car you know it's just it's gotta be stressful and just probably the worst fucking feeling you're just sitting here bleeding out and you, you left your kids because you wanted just a break for a day and now here you are well, dying yeah Helpless. and to get to like the point of like trying to understand that is the isn't really something that we're going to understand because this is you know her job like she's done this before so she's already in the mind frame of like this is a normal thing he's a john we're gonna hang it'll be fine i'm gonna go home to my kids like she would never intentionally I don't think anybody would get into a car that they thought someone was going to hurt them, but I can't even imagine thinking I'm going to work and I'm going, to, I'm a sex worker and leaving my kids to do that. So I think that like my mind just goes like to the worst ever, but I bet she, I don't know. She, I feel like she's super strong to be able to have even said what she said after being shot. Yeah. The, <laughs> Not laughing at the situation, but sh the fact that she was like with it enough to tell him she's going to haunt him, yeah. and he better like, take care of her damn kids. Yeah, like that's ballsy, and like she, you can tell she's a feisty woman who usually you wouldn't fuck with this woman, you know. And I think that's where the surprise attack comes in. Like she didn't have time to react or think that this was actually happening. So, yeah. when Anitra woke up, she was still in the passenger seat but the man was now straddling her and her seat was tilted all the way back and her skirt was pulled all the way up. 
she saw a flash of light that she recognized as the flash of a Polaroid camera. She felt the man get off her and heard the car start. Suddenly, she was being pushed out of the car and landed hard in the middle of the street. But Anitra remained perfectly still with her eyes closed tightly until she heard the sound of the car driving away. I don't even, like, I, I don't know how one would appear after having been passed out from being shot and blood loss and then how you could not like <gasps> like gasp or something like the fact that she was able to stay completely still and seemingly dead to him enough to get pushed out of the car and leave is Left amazing dead. yeah like the fact that she did not give it away that she was still alive that he could have shot her again is yeah she that was I didn't put it in here, but she was like bracing herself for the next gunshot, the next beating. Uh, and she just kind of sat there as still as possible with her eyes closed, hoping that he would drive away. But in her mind, she was thinking like, I'm about to be shot again or something. You know, this guy's about to make sure that I am dead. It, But that shot never came, thankfully. Mm. But the, the amount of, you're right, though, the amount of discipline and like just the wherewithal to hold yourself to the standard of I'm going to stay still so that this man thinks I'm dead. Like in that moment, I don't think that I'm capable of, I would freak the fuck out. I would think making as much noise would be beneficial. Um, but I don't, she, she made the right choice, honestly, because the, the guy, this quote unquote, nice guy just drove away. Yeah. She for sure made the right choice, but I don't know how she did it. No. Kudos to her. So Anitra somehow managed to get herself to what she thought was a main street. And, you know, picture this. She is uh, disheveled from being assaulted and she is bleeding profusely from a gunshot wound to her chest. And she is sh shambling herself down the street uh, in, I think this is around, probably around midnight, um, possibly earlier, but just, just walking in a direction that you hope is the main street and just all the energy you possibly have just shuffling down the street, just leaving a trail of blood. Gosh. So the thing is she knew enough about the hood she grew up in to know that people didn't answer their door after dark. So she literally forced her body to walk the three blocks to the friend's house that she was supposed to go to the party with and fell down at their door screaming for help. Except it seems as though that the, her friend got tired of waiting for her and went to the party without her because no one was home. Oh my god. Eventually, her friend would return home around 2 a.m. to find Anitra on her front porch curled up in the fetal position while still mustering all her strength to knock on the door. Don't let me die. Don't let me die. The friend immediately called an ambulance and Anitra was finally taken to a hospital. That's, oh my gosh, like the amount of blood she's lost, but like, I she guess this is up. like in the middle of a neighborhood, neighborhood I'm thinking now, I was like wondering why she didn't maybe go to a payphone, but in the middle of a neighborhood, there wouldn't be a payphone, so. It's not a neighborhood, it's the hood. It's the hood. Well, I just mean like in a, a group of houses, <clears throat> it, there wouldn't be a payphone. It's not like there's, you know. I'm thinking like these alleyways and blocks are like in a downtown heavily business populated area where she was discarded out of the vehicle may have been a more like 
strictly houses and not yeah. businesses, so there wouldn't be payphones. Because that was and my like, first thought: is why wouldn't she just go to a payphone and call nine one one rather than trying to walk three blocks to her friend's house? I don't know. Like I said, she knew enough that she knew that the residents of this neighborhood knew that this time of day or the nighttime is dangerous. Don't open your door. Don't like mind your business. If you hear something happening out there, like a gunshot, you don't want to be shot. So mind your business. You know what I mean? It's self self preserving. You know what I mean? Self preservation. Thank you. Self preservation at that point. Like, yeah, it's messed up as messed up as it sounds like you hear this bullshit happening outside. Someone literally dying but you don't want to be that person. So what do you do? You don't open your door. You stay inside. You lock your doors. You call you know, whatever you from the inside. But yeah, I would do the but, same thing. I wouldn't answer the door this, either. Yeah, but at the same time, like like we've been talking about, these people do not trust the, the 5-0 at all. So yeah. it, it's kind of like a... It's a well, double-edged sword. Th- this is no, reality. Another dead, another dead body. This is the reality of living where I live. Like, this is just what it is. And, and as shitty as that sounds, this is what the fuck it is. Mm-hmm. So Horrible. detectives had figured out that Anitra had been shot with a 25 caliber pistol and figured this was probably the same guy that had been murdering the other women. But just to be sure, they took the bullet that Anitra was shot with and compared it to Lucretia and found that the bullets had been fired from the same gun. As soon as it was confirmed that these cases were related and Anitra was well enough to talk, they sent a composite artist over to get a description so they could draft up what the guy possibly looked like. She took the time to describe exactly what the car looked like and what he had inside of it, meaning she noticed that there was tools, there was like a a green interior, uh, there was a jacket and on top of some books, like the tools looked like they belonged to like a mechanic or something, like they looked like things because her dad worked on cars so she knew certain tools were used for certain jobs and she's like in the passenger seat there was what looked like wrenches for uh an engine bay you know the type that they use for that and so she remembered all these things and told them like exactly everything that she remembered like she i don't know how she recalled it but she like to a t she described this car and then she told them about the stop that they made on 81st avenue when she was released from the hospital about a week later, Anitra took a drive with the, with the detectives to retrace her steps that night. They drove up to the house the guy took her to, and the next day, detectives came back and found the property belonged to an elderly man named Otis White, or Othis. Othis? Othis? It's a, oh. it's a strange name. Othis? Othis White? Yo, Anyways, Othis. So he's an elderly man. He's 77 years old. However, the house had become a dirty, overgrown drug and sex worker hangout. So despite the house not really giving any more clues since the old man did not fit Anitra's description of a young, you know, neatly dressed black man. Uh, he, this was an older, unkempt black man who's 77, so that's not the guy they're looking for. But there's also no way of telling who was coming and going since this was a crack house essentially um so what they did was they decided to search the area uh on 81st avenue and they were looking for this orange pinto with the racing stripe like i said pintos are common pintos with racing stripes are not 
So they knocked on a few doors and a friendly neighbor named Lonnie said he would call them if he heard or saw anything. But of course, the police never followed up to do a secondary search of the neighborhood and Lonnie never called them back. The 25 caliber. Yeah, he had no reason to. Yeah. Yeah. The police never came back because there was some neighbors didn't answer the door. So they didn't come back to canvas again. And Lonnie had no information to give him. So why the fuck would he call him? Yeah. So, so the 25 caliber murderer and the attack on Anitra was left unsolved because three more sex workers had been murdered this time with a nine millimeter pistol and that case needed solving. And that brings us to the end of the Grim Sleeper's reign of terror. Or was it? Oh, Oh, well, um, one thing is for sure, constant in this case is the fact that all the victims were discarded as trash. And we might touch on why they went there or why it was that way later, but they clearly held no value to him. And while it's not 100% clear if he hated women due to his childhood or if it was the type of work that these certain women did, leaving the napkin with the word written on it, with AIDS written on it, really seems targeted to me. And I'm thinking that it might have been something that he was personally exposed to and that's triggered him and he possibly got it from a sex worker. I don't know. I think judging by what the sole known survivor of the Grim Sleeper said, um, there was a woman named Brenda who he hated. Uh, You know, I don't know what she did. It's unclear uh, if that's like an ex-wife or a girlfriend or his own mother, maybe. But the way that like his personality shifted and he called Anitra Brenda, to me, feels like this guy, the Grim Sleeper, is murdering Brenda over and over again. Um, you know, it, to me, like that seems, uh, he, he hates this one person who did whatever she did to him. And now he takes it on, takes it out on innocent, you know, sex workers or, you know, we'll, we'll actually see that it's just like opportunity. Actually, it, he did target these sex workers, but it, it kind of was like anybody that would get in his car. As we saw, Anitra wasn't sex working at the time. She was going to a party with her friend. But like, is it is it possible that all of this murder and mayhem on the streets of LA was over one woman who did him wrong in some way that we have no clue about? You know, we have no idea. Yeah. Hmm. Possibly. I also feel that like, and I don't know how to, if I should even say it, I guess, because she's sole survivor that we're aware of but I kind of feel like that part was not specifically stated because that's what the narrative she was giving like if you get what I'm saying without saying kind of like that that maybe was along the lines of her work but not Oh, so you're saying that in her version of events that she told the police she was not out working Yes. One, because that's illegal and she didn't want to get in trouble. Two, um, possibly. she probably doesn't want everybody blasting her business. Maybe. But at the time, I mean, you don't, she doesn't know that this is, you know, related to a serial killer or that someone's going to be talking about her story later on, you know, many years later. But I just feel like that's not my go-to thing. If I'm a sex worker, I'm definitely not leading with that. Yeah. 
I agree. Uh, like we, we've been talking about this whole episode, uh, it, there is a severe distrust between the police and the community. Um, mm-hmm. And I think what we've learned from this episode is uh, cocaine is a hell of a drug. And um, the 80s in L.A. were don't live in the 80s in L.A. Don't live no. there. Serial killers galore. It is wild how many there are, dude. I, like I, <clears> I've <throat> known, I've known about many serial killers, but it, when when you actually start to like put together this episode and to tell you guys about it, you don't really. It doesn't click until you're like, holy shit, there's 15 of these dudes just terrorizing Los Angeles at the same time. It's mm-hmm. it's nuts, man. It's crazy. Just yeah, imagine you, if Mark you put Zuckerberg their tables. was a lot yeah. earlier. And he'd created Facebook sooner. We yeah. had known about it. Yeah, we'll, we'll how quickly definitely we'll definitely get into that a little bit more because uh, the coalition of against serial killers um, created by that Prescott woman actually makes the point that the police knew that there was a connection. We've been talking about this the whole time. They knew that there was a twenty-five caliber bullet. They knew that he had a certain. Uh, person that he went after he knew that there was a sexual assault and that there was beatings involved and then they were left like so much trash on the side of the road so they knew for a fact that there was a serial killer out there targeting these women in a specific way yet did not tell the community at all they didn't and after a lot of these families we'll talk about in later episodes like probably think the third episode we'll talk about the families how they were visited by the detectives or police officers who informed them that their loved one had been murdered and took information. They never saw the police again. And they, in, they, until certain information came out, they had no idea what was going on with the case. They didn't know that their family member was even murdered by a serial killer because the police did not communicate with the community at all. Literally did not like, I don't know. It, there's no way to tell how it it would have gone, but can I think I can safely assume that if the population in Los Angeles had been informed that there was a serial killer targeting a specific demographic, I think they might have been more uh, aware, possibly, you know, used a buddy system, something. You know what I mean? Like they they would have carried would have been more vigilant for sure, but yeah, but they they weren't informed. I yeah. mean, I if you're paying it, and it's like. Los Angeles and their sub communities are giant. This place is enormous. So it's not like, uh, not like our neighborhood, which is like a couple streets or it's like a square mile or whatever it is. This is South Central is massive. So one street to the next, you're not necessarily getting information because of the unfortunate circumstances of gang related murders, uh, you know, straight up domestic abuse murders. You know, there's all kinds of categories of murders that happen daily. So if, if you're not told that this murder is related to this next one, you really have no way of knowing. Sure, you know about the murder and you know that, oh, um, you know, Anitra from down the street, she got attacked and you know she survived, but uh, Barbara didn't. You know, there's no way to connect those if you're not given the information you need. And that's a huge thing that the um, coalition is talking about when they say that the police don't care about these murders. Um, you know, again, there's no way to know if if that would have helped. Uh, I think it would have. Uh, I believe that they should have informed the community and kept the families 
more involved in what was happening. They, they, like I said, they didn't even know that their loved one was murdered by a serial killer until like two decades later. That's yeah, insane. That's crazy. So yeah, uh, this, like I said, is our first three-part uh, series. Uh, we will go into um, a few more murders that happen later on. Uh, and then we will talk about who this dude is. Sounds like a plan. Let's do it. Socials? Oh, um, at Bloodthirsty Times, um, Instagram, Facebook, bloodthirstypod at gmail.com, at bloodthirstypod on Twitter, LinkedIn, or not LinkedIn, sure, we don't have that. Uh, Linktree is in our bio. Will's only fan is in his. Yep. <laughs> And thanks, Josh, for the fan submission email. We really appreciate it. Yeah, man. Thanks a lot. This is a wild story for sure. We really appreciate it. Yeah, we'll keep it going hot. Love you guys. Bye. Bye, everybody. Be safe. <laughs>